Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Media. I am Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. And we are starting to get used to the rhythms of the semester. The fall is always a tough one. You have that summer break, and then it just takes a little time to get used to actually mm-hmm. like talking and moving, and as, as you said before, waving your arms around. And There is a lot of that, and it, it's like every single class is different, too, you know? You've got these mm-hmm. different sort of different personalities and different energy, and... And you have to just figure out kind of what the rhythm of the of the group is and how to manage it. Yeah, and it really takes time. It takes, I'm usually not comfortable until at least week four. That's the point at which you have the dynamic kind of set and you can kind of settle in. But those first two, three weeks are really difficult. And like last week, I had a couple classes where I wasn't sure how things were going. I wasn't sure how discussion was going. And then on uh, Monday, yesterday, I had a really good class and, you know, gave me especially a better sense of how to run discussions in the mm-hmm. class. And these are both classes I've taught at least, both of these classes, I think at least three times. So I've done it. I have the canned jokes. I have all of my, you know, study questions in place and all that. But really, every time you teach it, it's a different dynamic, different chemistry in the room. Yeah, and the, the jokes don't always work. No. And the examples don't, you know, more substantively, the examples don't always work. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people who don't teach don't understand how improvisational it all is. Mm-hmm. It's about kind of capitalizing on a on a question or an energy and going with it. And it often seems like the more you plan, the more <laughs> leaden things can be. Yeah, exactly. And that, I think, responding both in the moment when you're in the classroom and then when you're prepping, that, like you said, you have your set examples, but new things come up, new ideas come up, uh, different students are in the room, and you really have to play things by ear. And that's why, again, my, my dad... Every semester, I've been teaching now, even if we go back to grad school, let's just stick with since I've been at Notre Dame for 15 years. And probably every semester, he will ask me, how many classes you teach in? And I say two. And he says, oh, sounds like banker's hours. And like, how how many times do I have to like visit him and spend 75% of the time doing work because of how much prep you have to do for him mm-hmm. to catch on? It's like his funny little joke. And it's it's not funny. No, it's not funny. That prep, it takes a long time. If you're doing it, if you are generally putting in the work that it that it needs, it takes that time. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, here's a here's a tip that I I learned this from somebody uh, down at the University of Texas, and I can't even remember who I stole it from. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take it. All right. But especially in a small class, to take a few minutes at the very beginning of the class, if you're especially if you're dealing with complex stuff, and just pull the table. And say, everybody has to float out something that they want to make sure we talk about today. And mm-hmm. that can be like something from a screening. It can be a, a difficult point in the in the article or it could be some tangent. You know, it can be something that, you know, that isn't really, really a central major point, but is something that, you know, enriches the conversation in some kind of way. And it's a great way to figure out where they are and get everybody talking just a little bit. And often that then just starts off the whole class. Mm-hmm. I'm, going like to, I'm going to use that because I have a very small class uh, this time around, uh, six students. And I love that idea because that's perfect. It won't take much time. It gets the juices flowing. And a key thing, it gets every single person talking. And in a comfortable way where you're not kind of calling on them and they have to come up with something brilliant. It's just what's on your mind. Yeah, it doesn't have to be brilliant. It's just, you know, what is your starting point for today? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. All right. Okay, and and this, you know, oh, I was gonna say this has been teaching tips with Hacker Media. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, if anybody uh, else out there has has some uh, particular tips you're interested in sharing, let us know. Yeah, this is maybe a good idea to, to yeah. kind of touch in once a month with some tips on teaching research time. Um, and just incidentally, I'll bring up we asked last episode for suggestions from grad students for topics, and one of them was about how people negotiate their time. Watching for fun versus watching for work versus doing both. Um, and maybe that's something we could maybe solicit some answers to that. So maybe our next Vox Galari could be yeah. on that topic. Stand by for a, for a call for a call for entries, a call yes. for responses. Yeah. In fact, we'll do that at the end of this podcast. Yes, we will. Call for help. So we've got some good stuff coming up here today. Yeah, you've got an interview in this episode, Michael. Yes, indeed. I spoke to Deborah Ramsey at University of Exeter about first-person shooter video games in World War II. Nice. And then I edited together one of the Field Notes interviews from the SCMS Field Notes Project, an interview with James Nairmore. Tales of Theft and Cinephilia. Ooh. It's good stuff. That's a title. So let's listen to the Ramsey interview. Okay, great. 
I am speaking with Dr. Deborah Ramsey, lecturer in film studies at Exeter University, about her article, Brutal Games, Call of Duty and the Cultural Narrative of World War II. Dr. Ramsey, welcome to Acamedia. Hello, thank you very much. So this is a really interesting article. Now, I have a personal interest in this because I teach in some similar kinds of areas, but I think it's really fascinating to start to take these kinds of games seriously as sites of historical knowledge of some sort. But of course, it's a partial kind of knowledge and, and with a lot of constraints, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's one of the things that drew me to writing about them in the first place, is that there's such a massive part of today's current mediascape. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the discourse around them seems to be focusing on what they're not doing rather than what they are doing. So, right. so talking about how they're bad history or that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. How they're so focused on um, kind of the running and gunning that they're mm -hmm. not really teaching anything about strategy or the overall reasons for the war. Um, and of course, there's a lot of focus in the general press on the violence and the right. gore and, oh, this is terrible. Um, and there have been one or two studies, uh, empirical studies, that have shown that actually other things are happening mm -hmm. here. And I think there needs to be a, a great deal more empirical work into it. But, I mean, as you know, my article is not necessarily an empirical study, but I, I was just interested in, in what they might be doing differently right. to everything else, all other forms of media. Well, it's not, it's not empirical or quantitative, but you certainly take the time to actually look at the game, which it seems like an awful lot of the complaints about these kinds of um, media forms don't actually take the game experience very seriously and just sort of leap to these really easy conclusions about about what kind of um, cultural work is going on there. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the issues with this is that it is actually a generational problem. And unlike mm -hmm. other media, you know, like film, you can generally go along and watch a film, but you have to know how to play a game. And you have to experience that um, process of playing mm -hmm. before you, I'm not saying you can't glean a lot from watching other people play, but there is something about learning how to play um, that changes your perspective on what games do. And I, I had to go through that process myself. I'm not of the generation that grew up playing these games, so it doesn't necessarily come naturally to me. Um, and I'm horrible at them. I'm absolutely <laughs> horrible. I die a lot. But much to my surprise, um, I really enjoy, really enjoy first-person shooters. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not necessary. it's not for the gore or for, for anything like that. There's some kind of visceral excitement to them that... That, that just personally I enjoy. Mm -hmm. But that also got me interested in that experience of learning how to play and what that meant and how different that is from, from other forms of media. Mm -hmm. So maybe what we should, um, you know, thinking about this issue, and I think you're absolutely right that, that as scholars, we're so alienated from that kind of interaction with a media text, which is what it is, right? Um, Maybe, um, you know, we have screenings and things like that at SCMS, so maybe we should have a, a game salon. I think that would be an absolutely brilliant idea. And we could get you and, like, you know, Nina Hunteman and Matt Payne and some of these other scholars who are working in that area to teach us how to play games. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be any good at teaching you how to play, um, but I, I'd certainly love to do that because, um, yeah, there's... It, just to go back to that generational issue, I think that is one of the, the problems with uh, the dismissal of the first-person shooter in particular, mm -hmm. is that because a number of, there is a kind of generational cohort of academics and of um, people in the press and of um, people who have the, uh, who are in a position to make comment on, on culture, uh, who have never ever had the experience of playing the game and who perhaps have only seen their children or grandchildren in some cases engage with games and 
I think because of that, there's a certain amount of fear um, mm -hmm. in terms of because they're unknown. They're an unknown quantity. Not necessarily, obviously, for all gen for the entire generation sure. as a whole, but I think there is a definite generational divide between a you know the gamer generation and the non-gamer generation. And of course, we would think it would be ridiculous for somebody to write about, you know, say something that is actually a, a where there is a generational divide, like Disney films. Um, although there might not be as much of a generational divide as, as we might initially think. But we would think it would be ridiculous for someone to um, dismiss all of that, all of those works, without actually taking the time to watch them, right, and engage with them. And then again, I think even when people do, again, I think, you know, because obviously some academics have looked at uh, first-person tutors, but... Um, in terms of talking about history and memory, I think they're, they're very quick to dismiss them and go, oh, it's just about the weaponry, it's just about, um, you know, because there is such a lot of, in gamer culture, there's such a lot of discourse about the weaponry. Mm -hmm. I think it becomes easy to dismiss that as not meaning much. But actually, you know, as I say in the article, those weapons, uh, knowledge of those weapons um, not only influences the way you play the game and the way you approach the game, but it also has a kind of cultural currency amongst gamers. Because if someone can tell you, oh, you need to use this weapon in this phase of the mm -hmm. game to get through more effectively, um, that's, that's something, that's knowledge worthwhile having. And so it's, it comes down to specific things like you have to use this machine gun if you're trying to take out this sniper's nest or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. And I think uh, people develop very individual styles of play. And I don't necessarily mean only in um, uh, online play, but also uh, in single player mode. Because, for example, my style of play is very different from my husband's. My husband mm -hmm. prefers the sniping and holding back. I'm a stupid runner and gunner. I will run into situations and get myself killed. Mm -hmm. But that that involves a certain... That means I go for particular kinds of weapons and he will go for other kinds of weapons. And so it's not quite as simple as me saying, yes, take that wet weapon that's going to get you through that section. Mm -hmm. It also... it. it, it it's more like there are nuances to it, like saying take that kind of weapon because that's going to suit your your game's game style, mm -hmm. your style of gameplay. So, do you think that gives gamers a new set of insights about about what it means to be in the military or or what uh, the experience of World War II was like? Yeah, I mean, I think Joel Penny's study is very useful in answering that particular question. Um, even though it's it's on a relatively small group, it's it's very much about how gamers react to the first-person shooter, and the different in emotional involvement they might have with, say, a Second World War game or a game that is based in a real real-world conflict, as opposed to a science fiction a game a game in a science fiction setting. Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly know for myself. Um, for example, there is a, a section in Call of Duty World at War, which is set on Peleliu, in, which is an island in the Pacific, mm -hmm. um, and it's set during the Peleliu campaign. And you really, playing through that campaign, really gave me a sense of what it must be like. Uh, I mean, just a hint of a sense. Sure. I don't by any means want to suggest that I have a real idea of what it's like yeah. to be in that kind of situation. But just what it must be like to face a kind of barrage that is not even letting you, a barrage of fire that is not even allowing you to land on the beach. Um, and it's a, a sequence that is very similar to Saving Private Ryan and it also uh, happens again in the Pacific, the, the recent uh, HBO series, which, right. and the, the sequence there is is almost... A, is very reminiscent of the landing sequence in World at War, Call of Duty World at War. Mm -hmm. But it's a very different experience playing through that game and playing through that moment on Peleliu as opposed to watching it in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. Because you, you really do get that sense of, uh, you know, the, the landing thing drops open, you're on the beach and you're dead. You have to start again. You, go, you might get a little bit further up the beach and then you're dead. And you get the real sense of, of that, that absolutely overwhelming barrage of fire. Those are the kinds of experiences that film scholars have been 
trying to make sense of for decades, right? You know, that that incredibly immersive, uh, visceral sense of, of just reacting, you know, like even if we're talking, if we're talking about, you know, body genre kinds of stuff or war films, that overwhelming experience of vicarious participation is one of the things that's kind of bedeviled us for for many years, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I'm very careful of getting into arguments about medium specificity. Uh, but I do, having said that, I do think there are things that games do differently. Mm-hmm. And, and one of them is that... Yes, if you're watching a film, if you blink, you might miss a moment. When you're playing in, uh, when you're playing any kind of game, there are moments where, for example, if you're taking a shot or you're you're doing something and you blink, you might actually miss the shot. Mm-hmm. Um, in which case, that changes what happens in the game, and there isn't another medium where that happens really. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Th- there is a very real connection between your body. And and the game space and the game world and that that's what interests me is that kind of connection between how that game space becomes your lived your lived space part of your lived space part of your lived memory because mm-hmm. I'm interested in memory um, and I think it does that in a very different way to uh, other visual media mm-hmm. um, because that. It, it's lived memory that you're experiencing directly. And I, I actually found this very hard to articulate in the article. But it is lived memory that you are, it's an experience that you yourself are having. It's not an experience that you are um, ex- having vicariously through right. a character in, in a film or a television series. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the key differences with games, uh, with first-person shooters in particular. Mm-hmm. I found myself thinking about, um, you know, kind of old classics of critical theory and thinking about Althusser and, and interpolation and, and that kind of, you know, the symbolic knitting of the self into the social world through this kind of mediated experience. But of course, what you're talking about is, I mean, it's still symbolic, but it is much more concrete and much more... Um, not quite sure what exactly the right word for it is, but that's... you kind of want to go for real, don't you? Right. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean, and I think it's why I I struggled to articulate it. And actually, mm-hmm. a, a couple of times um, during the editing process, people were saying to me, "But it's not a real lived experience." And I was going, "Yeah, I know. I'm not saying that it's the same as being on the beach, but I'm saying it gives you an experience that is real to you. I'm not saying it is the same experience as a soldier has." Sure. I'm just saying it's it's something that is real to you, and a lot of gamers will write about that. They will write mm-hmm. about having experiences in games that are as real to them as real world experiences, because yeah. it's something you're having directly. And I think that's possibly why games are or simulations are proving useful not only in training, um, but also in helping with conditions like PTSD, because. Yeah. It is a way to experience something that still the experience is real, but the the threat or the um, the actual you're not in that actual threatening real situation. Right. The consequences are are attenuated. Yeah. Uh, but the feeling of risk and the um, the kind of heightened anxiety is a is a reminder or is a um, yeah. is a way of kind of re-experiencing that emotion. And of course, that's you know if you think about cognitive behavioral therapy and that kind of thing, that's precisely what the, what um, makes recreating that experience um, potentially useful and interesting. And I wonder if that, if, now we don't, we don't typically talk about, talk about these issues in this kind of um, thoughtful, deliberate, careful way that you're talking about them in the general public. But I wonder if, some anxiety about exactly that kind of deeply affective um, participatory experience is part of is part of the um, taboo is probably too strong a word, but it's but part of the general criticism or fear of, of video games is that they do have this kind of um, transformative experiential quality. That is an excellent point, um, and it's not one I'd really considered before. But I think, yeah, I think um, 
the thing is, those transformative experiences, I think the, the difficulty is trying to explain that they're not necessarily what people think they might be. Mm. So, for example, when you are playing a first-person shooter, it's not necessarily that you are, in some cases, for some individuals, it might well be, but you're not I don't love them because I love killing. Right. Quite the opposite. I'd be, you know, completely horrified if I was in that in an yeah. actual situation um, I love them because of the way they allow me to explore I suppose it's tapping into excitement in a way I think one of the interesting things and this this could also be why they're disturbing is because they do absolutely tap into that joy of killing mm. um, that soldiers have and write about, that soldiers since the Civil War onwards have expressed. Mm. Um, and I, I think you're right. I think one of the reasons why people feel uneasy about them is because they allow us to tap into experiences that mm. perhaps we don't in other media and they do it in a way that is, that it, that is potentially transformative, as you as you say, I don't think I've answered that terribly coherently. But it's because no, I'm, it's fascinating. You, you know, I think it's a work. I think that's a whole different. That could lead to a whole different way yeah. of looking at it. Yeah. Well, so it's thank a, you for that. good question. Oh, it's it's these are really really interesting things to think about. And so, I mean, in some sense, it's a kind of an empathy for an emotional experience, right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes that empathy makes you um, makes you perhaps respect or appreciate the fear, you know, like of this kind of of that experience of a beach landing. But also, as you kind of provocatively say toward the end of your essay, it also is a vicarious experience of pleasure. Yeah. But actually, I think that's an incredibly, and, and for me, that's the key thing that um, that the first-person shooter in particular provides to, to the cultural narrative of World War II. Um, and particularly, because in my book, I, I look at um, World War II in American media. I think mm -hmm. there is particularly in American media, particularly current, uh, more recent um, things on uh, World War II, there is a tendency to, um, there's an emotional resonance to it where it is all about sacrifice and it's, it's, it's all about um, that bond between brothers and mm -hmm. male, that, that, those kind of male relationships. And I think the incredibly valuable thing that the first person shooter does is it cuts through all of that because I think that... All of that is also dangerous, in a sense, mm -hmm. and it's a, a different kind of danger that we don't talk about very often. Oh, it's really so it's easily seductive. Yeah, it's really easily converted into just a kind of nationalistic liturgy or something. Yeah, and and even the nationalism aside, even if you just look at ideas of war, it, it's a very seductive vision of war that mm -hmm. that war is about sacrifice, that there is a greater good to war. Um, that war can be just and that war can, in a sense, have a kind of beauty to it. And I think the first-person shooter cuts through all of that and goes, actually, no, war is not about sacrifice. War is about dying and killing. And, and it, it's that, that's why I called it Brutal Games, because it is that brutal truth that it's actually about killing. It's mm -hmm. not about sacrifice. War is about killing. And soldiers, I mean, I... I come from a military family. I have a, the greatest respect for the military. But I, I haven't met many soldiers who say, I want to go out and sacrifice my life. Mm -hmm. Mostly soldiers are saying, you know, I want to go out and do my job, which involves securing the area or, or making my country safe. And I'm going to do that by staying alive and killing the other guy, yeah. not by dying. So... I think the first-person shooter is a really valuable reminder of that. Oh, that is a brutal truth. That reminds that reminds me of that. Um, I don't know if it's actually a quote from that's actually a, an historical quote or if it's just a quote from a movie. But uh, George C. Scott and Patton, you know, gets up and says, "Your job isn't to go out there and die for your country; it's to make that other poor bastard die for his." Yes, absolutely, yeah. And I think it happens again in um, Sands of Iwo Jima. Uh, 
John yeah. Wayne says to his soldiers, you know, never mind about exactly that. Don't worry about dying for your country, make the other guy die for his. Yeah. And I, I think that is, that's something that has somehow just over the last two decades been lost mm -hmm. from American representations of World War II, mediated representations of World War II. It's that idea that actually those soldiers were also going out to, you know, to try and live. This is fascinating. I think you make a really powerful case for reading these games as making a very important intervention in the way that we understand this cultural history. I think a, I, I think a great deal more research needs to be done because, again, I mean, you can make assumptions about what they're doing. And I, I think for me, the evocative thing is, um, I can't remember which general it was now, but just before the first Gulf War, uh, there was a general in the American army who was saying that for his soldiers, their entire view of war was colored by film and by Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, and that was also very, very true in Vietnam. Uh, the Vietnam War was a lot of the soldiers wrote about how uh, their perception of what would happen was colored by World War II films, mm -hmm. John Wayne's films in particular. Um, to the extent that it actually influenced strategy, which I think is, is fascinating, but that's another topic. Yeah. And now you have an entire generation of soldiers coming in who have grown up playing games. And I think there's been a lag in recognizing how much their perception of war is potentially shaped by, by these games. So I think there's a whole really um, promising field of research, to, area of research, to be explored there and a lot more to be done to really understand what they're doing yeah. rather than just dismissing them as well that's violent and and it there's there's not much happening there yeah it's a, a kind of a new epistemology of war yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. and if, you know and the american army in particular has been very clever at recognizing that to a degree Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, using online tools like America's Army to, um, and it's, it's part of a long history, obviously, of the rela relationship between the military and the gaming world, sure. which I, I can't, couldn't really go into in the article. Um, but a lot of that history, I, I think, again, that's something people don't understand. Very often, um, the military are using games to, and America's Army is similar, to teach about strategy and about um, the values that the army has rather than teaching people how to shoot and kill. Right. So you can't necessarily teach someone how to shoot and kill through a game. And that's another important thing to remember, actually. Yeah. Well, this is really interesting uh, material. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it. No, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. I thoroughly enjoyed it. That was such a great interview. I really like that we've gotten now into to video games and especially what struck me as intriguing was the experiential process that she talked about with research. It's of course common we talk about watching movies that we write about and television shows and so forth, but that idea of actually playing the game, getting a sense of what kind of experience that is and then translating that into the theoretical research. I found that really compelling in your conversation. I really enjoyed that interview too. It, it was really fascinating to me and I, I think that issue of kind of the experiential quality of encountering the object, whatever it is, is both a really natural starting point because it's it is the thing that we share with anyone else who encounters this um, that particular text or object or whatever. But it's also something that we don't have particularly good language to talk about. Yeah, I think that's something we need to further develop, and that will then in turn help the the field grow. And I, in that sense, I really like your idea to have an SEM or SCMS workshop where. We learn how to do. Yeah, it would be really fun, wouldn't it? Stuff. Yeah, I think that'd be a blast in multiple ways. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another coming together of, yeah, work and, and play in, in very revealing ways. Yeah. 
Um, all right. Well, let's jump now to another Field Notes interview. And thanks again to the SCMS Field Notes team led by Heidi Wasson for making these available to us. You can find the full interviews on the SCMS Field Notes site, which we will link to on our website. But we're going to give you just a condensed version of it, um, sort of a taste of, of what you'll find in the full interview. And yeah, this is an interview with the legendary James Naramore, and he's interviewed by Jake Smith of Northwestern University. Thanks so much for taking the time to be part of the uh, SCMS Field Notes. When did you first become interested in, in film and, and thinking about film as a scholar? As, as a scholar, that took a while, but I need to back up a little bit because I think I was always interested in film. And I, I, uh, the, the movie theater was a kind of magic place for me when I was a kid. It was like a womb or something, I don't know. And uh, so I loved movies. And uh, when I was in high school, I made three discoveries. One was... Um, in the high school library, I found uh, Deems Taylor's pictorial history of the movies, which was a standard pictorial history of the movies, and a good one. And uh, I just devoured it, and I actually swiped it from the high school library. Uh, and years later, I found that Martin Scorsese had a similar experience, and he says at one point that he wanted to swipe it from his high school <laughs> library. Uh, you want to? Yeah. But, but anyway, I hadn't seen a lot of these movies, but I, I just found it fascinating about the history of them. And the second one was, I read uh, Ben Hecht's autobiography. I think I was interested in being a writer. Uh, then I thought, oh, when I go to college, I'll study journalism and I'll be a reporter and have a kind of an interesting life as a reporter and figure out a way to write something that will get me into the movies, uh, you know, as a scriptwriter or something like that. Uh, that was a sheer fantasy because the movie industry was changing radically by that point, and I didn't have any idea how to do it. And the, the other discovery I made was um, uh, James Agee. I somehow stumbled across James Agee, and I was I was just swept away by everything he wrote. But I had bought a copy of Agee on film, and uh, I just loved reading it, even though I hadn't seen many of the movies he was talking about. So I had this intense interest. But when I went to college, I didn't like the journalism course. And I, was, uh, I loved my freshman English teacher. Um, and I said, I want to be like that guy. So I became an English major and, and stayed that way in grad schools. I never took a film course. Uh, such things really didn't exist. Uh, at Wisconsin, where I went to uh, grad school, there, was, there were film courses, I think, somewhere on the campus. I think David Boardwell came there the year I left. But I had the idea even then, although I was, at my dissertation was about Virginia Woolf, I was going to be a, a literary scholar, but I had the idea, oh, once I start making a salary, maybe I can buy the equipment I need to make a movie. And mm -hmm. I, actually, I actually had the idea uh, in those days, uh, I had read this re Renaissance drama called Arden of Feversham. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a fairly obscure Renaissance drama. Some people think that Shakespeare may have written parts of it. But it's, it's, it's really raw and naturalistic and realistic. And I had this idea, this fantasy of doing a kind of modern dress, if you like, version of this in a kind of neorealist style. And uh, so I thought, oh, when I get money from college, I'm going to go out and buy some stuff and do this. But then I, I, I soon found out once I got a job that it was all consuming. I had to, I had now a career. I couldn't just monkey around. And, and I, I really, though it seemed like a lot of money I was making compared to anything I'd had before, it really wasn't enough money to, to, to dabble in things like this. And I had a child and so forth. So anyway, that was my experience. Uh, and, but, I, but I had always this passion about the movies. When I got to Indiana, Harry Gettle was teaching film courses there in comparative literature. He had, I guess, probably started what, what there was of the film program. There wasn't a lot of it at that point. And also Charles Eckert was there. And uh, Charlie and I became, I think, good friends. And he, I always thought he was the most brilliant guy I ever knew. But that fueled my, my interest. Also, while I was in grad school, I had read Andrew Sarris's uh, The American Cinema, and that had a really powerful impact on me. So I was fascinated with the history of Hollywood. And then about that, also during that time, I read Noel, not in grad school, but once I came to Indiana, I, I read Noel Birch's uh, Theory of Film Practice, and that had a big impact. And then I, you know, I was reading Robin Wood and Raymond Durnyot and people like that. I went to... Uh, I, I, my, my dissertation got published, a book on Virginia Woolf, and I, I went, I, I wrote a little article about the Maltese Falcon for Literature Film Quarterly. And I remember going to my 
a couple of people in the department, senior people in the English department, and saying, look, I really think I would like to write a book about Orson Welles. Is that going to be okay? Because, you know, the department doesn't do film. And, and uh, some of them just shrugged their shoulders and said, sure, fine, go ahead. And, but one guy told me, he said, you know, you'd be better off if you wrote a book about James Joyce's Dubliners than, than a whole book about Orson Welles. Uh, but I, anyway, at that point, I was too far into it. And Harry Gettle had given me the opportunity to write a little monograph about Psycho. Right. So, so that really kind of started what, what became my writing about film. Yeah. 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 I, I wanted to go back on a, on a, a couple of things. Just the, the point that you made about the film theater being kind of this magical place. Yeah, yeah. Can you say a little bit more about, was there a specific theater when you were young? No, was... I just went into all of them, yeah, all of them. And, and it, that was the days, you know, it, the divestiture of the studios from the theaters had already happened. I was in a little town called Sulphur, Louisiana. It's near Lake Charles. And in Lake Charles, in those days, there were, oh, what, I don't know, four or five movie theaters very moderate-sized town. It was clear that a couple of those uh, must have been controlled by MGM because most of the MGM movies came to one of those two places. Uh, Fox seemed to do movies in, an, in another theater. And then there was a, uh, a real grungy place, a place that just played re-released stuff. The hallways smelled of urine. It was, it was just really grubby. But I saw some great stuff in there. Uh, the first time I ever saw uh, It's a Wonderful Life was in there. So, I mean, I, I like the old stuff. It, it impressed me a lot. Yeah. I have to ask, too, because Wells ends up being so important. Yeah. Is, that, is his work something you encountered on the radio as well? Was radio important? Uh, I remember as a child hearing Wells' voice on the radio. It's a very young child. I, I remember hearing that shadow thing he did, you know, who knows what lurks in the, what, what evil lurks in the hearts, hearts of men. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I, I can remember that his voice had a particularly mesmerizing quality, but I didn't know very much about Wells. There was something kind of spooky or satanic about his voice. But when I read that uh, Deems Taylor book I, I told you about, uh, Pictorial History of the Movies, there are four stills from Citizen Kane in there. And he's talking about it, and he talks about Wells being a magician. And I was, at that time, a boy magician. I had learned how to do sleight of hand. I used to do shows for, for kids and for the Rotary Club and stuff like that. I was even on local television a couple of times. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I've all forgotten it now, but, but I was crazy about magic. And here was a guy who was a magician. And, <clears throat> and then one night on TV, in a very snowy, you had a, you know, an antenna in those days. It was kind of a snowy evening. I saw the opening of, of A Journey into Fear, the, the sort of low-budget movie that Wells did, didn't even direct, although he clearly shaped the style of the film. And the opening of that film blew me away. And so I said, oh, wow, Orson Welles is pretty interesting. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I was always interested in him and in Hitchcock. Hitchcock made an, a, a strong uh, impact on me when I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. What about teaching? When was, what was, do you remember the first film course I, Yes, you I, I remember the first film course I taught. I don't remember, um, I guess the Psycho book had been written by then, I don't know. But uh, uh, again, Harry was generous enough to allow me to teach a course in comparative literature. So I was able to, uh, in, in those days, a lot of people in, England, in the English department in Indiana had joint appointments in comparative literature. I did not at that time, but, but I had a comparative literature minor when at Wisconsin. And, because all the film courses were, at that time, in comparative literature, when I got really intensely interested in this, they loaned me out to teach a course there. And I, I'm pretty sure the first course I taught, and it was, it was highly successful, was uh, a course on, on Wells and Hitchcock. Uh, so it was like 50% Wells and 50% Hitchcock. Uh, and those were the two directors I was most interested in. But they also make a really intriguing comparison. Uh, and they. They kind of overlap in certain ways. They make interesting comparison and contrast. Who did you? What other schools or programs would you have thought at that time as being your competitors or? Well, I think I, I, I think the, the most successful people at that time were uh, Dudley Andrew and David Boardwell. I should have mentioned David, by the way, as an influence on me. I told you I read the theory of film practice, and I read the first version of film art, the the, the textbook. The technical aspects of that, even though I knew a lot about movies and even had made a little bit of a movie, it helped develop a formal vocabulary for me and, and to think about certain things. And so that was important. Too. So I would say uh, that the program at Wisconsin and the program at Iowa were very high profile during that period, maybe more than Indiana, I don't know. 
although looking back on it now, uh, it, it, was, it was interesting that Indiana was in comp lit, and I, I think Indiana gained something from that, uh, that it, it, it attracted some students who, were, who spoke different languages, who had more of an interest in world cinema, mm. uh, and it, there were kind of an interesting breed of graduate students there that I, don't, I suspect were not quite the same as in those other places, which they, they were centered in communications departments, I believe, at that time. Thinking about technologies of teaching in yeah. your earliest yeah. um, experiences of the classroom teaching yeah. film, a lot must have changed. What yes, was it like absolutely. in terms of teaching film in you know when you were first beginning yeah. to do that? Well, the medium one had to work with was 16 millimeter, and there were lots of rental agencies designed for classroom schooling uh, where you could rent 16 millimeter films. So when we taught at Indiana, we, we did two things. We rented from those places and we began purchasing more and more 16 millimeter films for a library of our own, just sort of canonical films. But in the classroom, 16 millimeter is what one had. And <clears throat> what I tried to do early on there, uh, we purchased some analyzing projectors. I don't know if you've ever seen an analyzing projector. It's a 16 millimeter projector, but it allows you to stop on a frame ah. or, or to go forward one frame at a time. I can't remember if you could go backward. I used those from time to time in class. Like for example, if I would show the shower scene from Psycho, I would stop on certain frames or, or go very slowly uh, through certain things so people could see the editing. I, also, I, I don't think anybody else did this, but I, I built up a whole collection of 35-millimeter slides. I, I had the film studies office buy a camera with an adapter on the front of it that you can take a, a photograph of a single frame of 16-millimeter film. And in fact, the illustrations from my Wells book and for my uh, uh, book on acting were all done that way. Hmm. They, you, you know, I, got, I just took them to a Photoshop and had them blown up into glossies and sent those to the publisher. But uh, in the classroom, I used these slides, and I would sometimes lecture with the slides. And I thought at the time, that when, when people started showing videotapes in the classroom, I thought, oh, man, this is disgraceful. This is so sleazy. It's not, this is not really movies. This is, and, and, and you can't really analyze anything with these videotapes. Mm -hmm. uh, but as time went on, I, I began to realize that, uh, no, the digital has sort of greatly enhanced both writing and teaching about about film. Uh, I could, can't imagine how one... It, I, I don't even remember how I was able to write with a typewriter, but anyway. Yeah, I'm amazed to think about a, a, a time in film studies when people were writing from memory, oftentimes yeah. about a exactly, film. Exactly, uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It seems like just the... In so many ways, it's a, an example of how the technology changes the uh -huh. field's expectations. Exactly. I mean, I think you see that in film history mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. with all these... Right online digital right. archives, newspapers, that right. it's kind of an arms race yeah. now to see who has sure, enough sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, historical material. Uh, uh, I think Raymond Ballour once said, uh, a remark that always stuck with me, that the major difficulty in writing about film, as opposed to writing about literature, and he wrote about literature as well, uh, is, is that when you're writing about film, you can't quote. And, and I think what he meant by that is, if I'm writing an essay about Robert Frost, I can, within certain limits, quote lines of the poem, uh, poem right there on the page and, and comment on, on that. Whereas with movies, the best you could do was take a still of a, a sequence and, and then try to describe the sequence as a whole in some way. But now, I think on... I, I just wrote something recently for um, Cinefiles. It's, a, it's an online journal. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, I saw that. Yeah. For example, when I was writing, this was a piece about acting. And, and, and when I was writing about acting, I found it particularly difficult uh, to do because you couldn't quote. You had to just sit in the room and watch sequences over and over and try to be as good as you could about evoking what was happening. Whereas now, you could do a, a video essay about acting pretty easily. I mean, and, and you could even show moving sequences uh, digitally rather than just stills. So it, it, may, it makes it, certain kinds of writing about movies a lot, uh, a lot more interesting and easy. Although, to play devil's advocate, uh -huh. it seems, I mean, so I just taught, as you know, I taught a media performance seminar. Yes, we read yeah. your acting uh -huh, book. Uh -huh. And the fact that you go to that fine-grained analysis and mm -hmm. are able to describe it, that's so much of the joy of reading yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, I'm it, pleased. It, I always felt that that, that book took a long time to develop an audience, I think. 
and didn't get very strong reviews when it appeared. Uh, but I thought it was the in some ways the best written thing I've ever done, or the thing that I devoted the most care to, and because it was so hard to write about acting. And so, yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't mean, yes, I don't think that the digital lets the, the writer off the hook. I think you still have to be a good writer and not just, I, I know now, that I, I don't teach very often anymore, but, but sometimes when I'm teaching, I, I had the experience of teaching fairly recently at, at UCLA, and one of the things that I, I had good students, but I, one of the things I had reservations about it in the graduate seminar is that when people gave a report, it was mainly clips they had taken from a film or, or various wonderful kind of digital uh, things they had done to put several images together, to talk about so-and-so. And, -so. and it, there were times when it seemed to me that the ability to do these kind of shows got in the way of really talking about the material, you know, hmm. if you see what I mean. Yeah. yeah. How, how have students, either undergrads or grads, changed since you started teaching them in the 70s to, to <clears throat> uh -huh. more recently? I think in the 70s when I was teaching, when I began teaching, I think the average student had a wider frame of knowledge than they do now. Uh, the whole system of graduate study, I, I think this is everywhere in the United States, it has changed considerably since, since I got a PhD and since I was working the first decade or so of my teaching. One of the main things that happened was the shift toward tailoring everything the graduate student does toward that graduate student's choice of a dissertation. So that the course selection, a special committee is developed in order to develop an exam on that topic for that student. Whereas the kind of PhD exams that I took and that students took for a long time after I became a teacher were general exams. That is to say, everybody took the same general exam. And it was only after that that you lit on a specific topic. And I think the system of graduate education that we have right now is, is too narrow. And, and there ought to be a wider frame for it, a, a more general kind of learning. I, of course, one of the problems is that we don't have any more an established canon. Um, I think that we should, without going back to some of the old reactionary qualities of the old canon, we should try to institute canons of some kind or another so that, every, that we feel are important for anybody in the field to know and be able to talk about. And that that ought to be the, the basis of the, the PhD examinations. But that's, that's just me. That's where I came from. Um, any final thing? <laughs> no, no, no. I am not a... Uh, I've had an interesting career, in a, and I've lived a long time, but I, I, uh, I'm not uh, a fount of wisdom, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, your, your yeah. work is certainly yeah. a fount of wisdom, I think, uh -huh. for, for, uh, for all of us in the field. Mm -hmm. And uh, thanks a lot for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? <laughs> the shadow knows. Well, that was an interesting interview. It's really nice to hear from um again, and this is this is one of the strengths of this series all along, I think, is to hear from someone who has such a broad and deep experience within the field, you know, to, to watch the development of the field through someone's career and hear them reflect upon it is really interesting. Yeah, the scope, and especially, you know, remarking upon things like the shift from only being able to watch films via 16 millimeter to now the digital age being able to stop, freeze, do very minute analysis, but also then his point he drew out of that about the pros and cons of both of those, that there were mm -hmm. upsides and downsides to both of these uh, differing eras, and we need to make ourselves aware of those. Yeah. I was also really interested in thinking about this issue of canonicity and mm -hmm. the, way it, the way that graduate training does or does not prepare someone for the kind of more generalist conversations that most of us end up having in our teaching most of the time. Yeah, I, I remember because I was still on the sort of old PhD era where we had a, an, our exam list where there was the core set of texts we needed to know Bazan and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I now mostly teach TV, but occasionally teach film and still these things can come up where I know, you know, I can talk offhand about Bazan because in grad school I had this set list. And so there is value to that. But I also think it is important, particularly given the range of what media studies is now, 
to allow for a breadth of study as well, um, or excuse me, not a breadth, but kind of a drilling down within a, in a particular area for grad students. I think that, that there's an advantage to that. Yeah, too. And, that's what, and that's what graduate research has to be about. But, you know, it wouldn't make sense to have a PhD as a, as a film generalist or, in, or as a TV generalist. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, that doesn't work. But part of learning how to teach over a period of decades is, is figuring out how to backfill your knowledge gaps mm-hmm. and how to how to kind of narrate the relationships between these different areas of the field. Yeah, and that comes up not just in your research, but in your teaching as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I believe we have something to announce. Yeah, we do. We had a giveaway that we announced last episode, and we now have a winner. We asked winner, for winner. grad students to send in their ideas for Acamedia. We got a number of entries with some really fantastic ideas, but the ones that were especially most thoroughly thought out were from Joel Neville Anderson from Rochester University. So thank you so much, Joel. Here's the downside to this, though. Yeah, he happened to mention he really liked our podcast. Yeah, so and, I you think know, we're going to help out. Him. And so, yeah, we're going to make him help out. Yeah, that's what happens. You call in and you might you might just become, <laughs> it's you know, like, yeah. get hired. It's like coming up with a great idea and then at a faculty meeting and then someone's like, all right, let's make a committee. Excellent. You're the head let's of it. Let's go with that. Sweet. But actually, we do need some help, uh, partly because our uh, beloved Bill Kirkpatrick is, he's on research leave and he actually needs to do some work on a book that he's working on. And so he's not going to leave us, but he's going to step back a little bit. And so Joel is going to step up and help us out. But we also are basically opening up a request for help. We want stringers, essentially, is the concept we're looking for. Yeah. So if there's, if there is a story idea or a particular interview or some kind of piece that you think ought to be on Acamedia, then there's no one better than you to produce it. Yeah, or if you just like the idea in general of helping out and you want to put yourself in our Rolodex so that we can refer to you when we, you know, we have an interview idea we'd like someone to conduct it, please get in touch with us. Yeah, and if, if you're interested in helping out on the back end of things, doing kind of background work, research work, and getting our website together and that kind of thing, that would be great to have you help out with that too. Yeah, and this indicates how much Bill does. He does all of these things. So him stepping back, we need multiple people. So yeah, basically, if you want to pitch in and help with ACA Media, we fully invite your input. So that is info at ACA-media.org is our email address. You can also find us on Twitter. What's that Twitter? ACA underscore media. Right. That's it. And we also have the Facebook group of which... A number of you are members. Yes. So, yeah, carry the conversation on there. If you have any uh, show ideas, go ahead and post them on our Facebook page. Acamedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Durf Fund at Denison University. And again, invaluable help every month from Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University and, of course, our producer, Todd Thompson, down at University of Texas at Austin. We're also grateful for those who took the time to talk to us during this episode, particularly to Deborah Ramsey at the University of Exeter, as well as Jake Smith and James Naramore for their conversation. And thank you again to the Field Notes team led by Hattie Wasson with Barb Klinger and Patrice Peacher on the uh, committee as well. We'll see you at uh, fall break. That's right. Fall is coming. Wait. Oh, sorry. I just ended on a downer note. Fall's nice, though, right? There's, you know, it's kind of nice, cool evenings, pretty leaves, that stuff.